0: Data have always been important to the work of journalists, from Jacob Reese's reporting on how the other half lived in late 1800s New York City, to stories about gun violence in 2022, Journalists need numbers to tell their stories, but not every reporter is trained to find and work with data. For those who want to dive into investigative journalism, which often depends on complicated data, learning the skills to clean and analyze statistical information is a crucial part of the job. One NPR reporter's journey into the field of journalistic data analysis is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Austin Fast. Fast specializes in data analysis on NPR's investigations team, often collaborating with reporters from NPR member stations across the country. Before coming to NPR, Fast reported for KJZZ in Phoenix and covered the world's largest wild salmon fishery at kdlg he's also written breaking news at a cincinnati tv station and taught english overseas with the peace corps and importantly he's an alum of the journalism program here at miami austin thank you so much for joining us
1: yes thank you for having me
0: i just want to ask how you got interested in using data in your reporting
1: Yeah, well, it started, I mean, you mentioned that I work for KDLG, uh, which is a small NPR member station in Dillingham, Alaska, which is if you like to eat salmon, um, there's a good chance that it comes from that area of Alaska. And so accordingly, a lot of the reporting I was doing was focused on numbers about how many salmon were being caught by the fishermen, how many salmon were escaping up the rivers to continue the, the species, because that's something that they're really focused on there is making sure that they fish sustainably. And so as I was doing my reporting there, I realized there were so many more stories that I could be looking into if I just knew how to analyze all these numbers that were coming from the the Department of Fish and Wildlife from, in Alaska. You know, the, every day they had these all, all sorts of numbers and I was, you know, reporting them across the, air, the airwaves to the fishermen who wanted to hear them and depended on them to kind of direct where they might, you know, cast their nets that day. But I realized there's, there's trends within this data and these numbers that I was probably missing and just didn't know how to dig into. And so that's, that's really how I got started and interested. And, and I realized a good way to kind of expand those and learn those skills was to actually get a master's degree at Arizona State. Um, They have a program specifically in investigative journalism. And, and you mentioned that I was in the Peace Corps, the Peace Corps has this great program where they will fund uh, master's studies. So it all kind of came, it was a perfect, perfect storm. Cause I was like, ASU has this program and that focuses on data journalism and investigative journalism and the Peace Corps, you know, has funding. So, you know, it was a win-win. Um, and that's, that's really how I, how I got into it. And I, would you like me to tell you more about the, the program itself?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I just the the immediate follow up for me was, what does it mean to train in
1: investigative
2: journalism? What are some of the components of what you did as part of that training?
1: Sure. So the program at at Arizona State, um, it's a 18 month program. And so the entire semester, they call it boot camp. So it really is training. Um, It's bringing in people from, you know, not necessarily who've worked in journalism. For example, we had a paleontologist who wanted to become a journalist. And we had people who had been uh, English teachers, like I was in the Peace Corps. And, you know, we had a person who did fraud investigation for a bank, you know, so they could come from all sorts of um, walks of life and they wanted to become journalists. And so we had this boot camp um, where we were learning, you know, all the basics of, of you know, radio, TV, print journalism. But then one of the classes that I was most excited about was specifically data journalism. And so it was taught by Sarah Cohen, who um, was formerly of the New York Times, Washington Post, St. Petersburg Times. And she started, she really was able to lay it out and start with the basics, you know, about what, what is data? What are numbers? What does it mean? She, she, like, I, to be honest, had never worked with Excel pivot tables before, before that class, you know, I, I took the news and numbers class with with you, John, 13 years ago, as we talked about a little bit ago, but I don't know that we talked about pivot tables in that class. And so I was able, you know, we kind of learned the basics of, of, you know, what you can do with them and how you can look for what Sarah Cohen called it was interviewing the data, just like, you know, journalists interview people, you can also interview the data, you know, you can ask questions of, you know, how many people are, you know, doing this, how, how many people are doing that? What are the extremes, the outliers, because a lot of times the people on either end of a data set are particularly interesting um, in terms of Uh, you know, journalistically. And so we started with Excel and then we moved into a statistical programming language called R um, that I'm sure you're familiar with, and uh, (laughs) I would assume. And so um, really, I think one of the things, the main things I took away from that class is that as a data journalist, you'll never know all the answers. Um, There's always a new package in R or Python to, to do what you wanna do, and you're not gonna know everything. Um, or memorize it all. And that's not the point. I think a major part of that class was to learn how to, um, you know, ask questions and find the answers for yourself. So I I would say, a a major part of being a data journalist is actually um, googling a lot of stuff, like being proficient at googling, because, like, for example, the other day, I was trying to, I I thought to myself, um, I wanted to calculate distances using latitude and longitude and R from one point to another. And I had, you know thousands of points. And I thought, well, surely there's an R package for that somewhere and do a little bit of Googling. And sure enough, there it is. I found it. And, you know, 20 minutes later, I'm able to, for thousands of points, calculate the distance between them in R. And, you know, I didn't know how to do that before that, but really what, you know, the major takeaway of that class was, you know, you need to be inquisitive and ask questions and, you know, learning how to find answers for yourself.
0: Was there a story you were working on? So it sounds like, you know, in a classroom environment, I think it can be really easy to feel like you, to get confident, right? And look, I know how to do this. But then when you go out into the real world, you're like, oh no, like at least that was for me, like multiple times And as a journalism student, like, yes, I know how to do this thing. And then went into the real world and I'm like, oh no, what do I do now? And I wonder, was there, was there a story for you that you were working on or you worked on in grad school where kind of this, some of this kind of came together for you, where you were taking what you were learning in that class? and then we're able to really see how it was helping you as a reporter.
1: Yes, yes. Um, so part of the, the the capstone of that program at Arizona Arizona State you spent an entire semester working on one investigation. And so at the time, it, COVID was just, you know, ramping up. It was in 2020 uh, when I was in that class and we focused on how was COVID-19 affecting people experiencing homelessness. That was something that hadn't really been looked at yet. And so I got put in charge of the data element of that project. And so I didn't know much about, you know, housing. And um, I I definitely was an expert on COVID because none of us were. But again, like I said, I think a a key part of being a data journalist or any journalist is asking questions and finding the experts who can answer those questions for you. So what I did was I, I reached out to a bunch of demographers and sociologists and epidemiologists and asked them if I wanted to see where are the places that are most affected where are the places where people experiencing homelessness are most affected by covid what would i do and they were able to point me towards some data sets that are you know the, the county health what is it called the county health rankings that i think the robert wood johnson foundation puts out every year um, and some other data sets that are gathered by, you know, various national organizations. And I was able to create what we called a vul- vulnerability index to see which counties might be, you know, of all the 3,200 counties across the country, which might be most affected uh, in terms of their people experiencing homelessness affected by COVID. Um, and then we, we used, I was able to narrow down to about 43 counties using what I had learned in that data journalism class in R, um, and we then sent records requests to all those counties asking for um, you know communication about with some keywords like covid and homeless housing shelter those types of things and we're able to get back from a lot of those cities and those counties some really interesting emails about how the people in charge there were dealing or are not dealing with this crisis as it was unfolding and it led to a, a, a great report that was published by the Associated Press and run in newspapers all across the country. And so that was a great way to see what i take, what I'd learned in in a class and then, you know, put it into practice in the real world.
2: Yeah. I I think it's interesting that that part of, as you're describing the work that you were doing, was this identification of these potentially rich data sources. So there was Mm -hmm. this, just that, that kind of, what's the, what does the world of data look like for the problem and question of interest to you? And then kind of how do you go through and And kind of process that, that, that Mm -hmm. kind of data munging step that we talk about. And then finally, what kind of analyses are appropriate in support of probing this question that, that you started? Mm -hmm.
1: And I, I, I mean, I would say this really relies on finding. I'll just reiterate, it relies on finding what one of my professors at ASU called a Sherpa, you know, someone who, (laughs) who, someone who's an expert because I, I, wasn't an expert and that's a key part of that process. Um, could you, could you repeat the second part of your question?
2: Well, yeah, that's that's assuming there
1: was a question, Austin. I, that was okay, ge- that was very generous of
2: you. I, you know, I, it just uh, as I was reflecting on kind of what you were saying about about just this investigative journalism and kind of the data journalism component of it, there mm-hmm. were three at least three components that I was hearing. One was just identifying the source. Then the second part was, what kind of skills were you needing and using to process that information to a usable form? And then lastly, some of the analyses that you were executing. And right. when, as you look at, at those components, what, what typically has been the hardest part of, of doing an analysis in some of these data journalism, investigative reporting activities you've done?
1: One of the difficulties that I run into a lot is that... People who aren't experienced in working with data, a lot of times they think that it's a, a kind of a magic bullet, like, oh, I have this story I'm hearing ane- you know, I'm reporting, I, I'm hearing these anecdotes from one or two, maybe let's say, be generous, say five, 10 people I'm hearing anecdotes from and they're convincing anecdotes. And I want to do a story about it. But wouldn't it be great if we had some data to back it up? And, you know, sometimes when I've been pulled into those projects, the data doesn't quite back up what the anecdotes are saying. And so that always leads to an uncomfortable conversation where a data journalist has to say, well, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, they may be one of those outliers that I mentioned a little bit ago. And yes, they are interesting, because, you know, journalism is all about stories and human emotion. And and that's, you know, still a valid, uh, a story about their experience, but I don't know that the data supports, you know, a broader claim. And and ethically, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that that you should use this data source. And so, that's definitely one of the difficulties that I've come up with, you know, in working with um, other journalists who don't have some of that data literacy that as much as as much as data journalists generally do. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to NPR's Austin Fast. Austin, you do work at NPR. You are uh, doing data analysis on the investigations desk. What does a typical day look like for you?
1: <laughs> um, it it really varies.
0: Is there a typical day? <laughs>
1: yeah, every day is is different. Which I mean, that's why I wanted to be a journalist. You know, if I wanted, I, 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 that's what I love about journalism is that no two days are the same. But a lot of times what I do at NPR's investigations desk, a lot of times I'm partnering with with reporters from member stations. You know, NPR has, has hundreds of stations all across the country. And uh, last year, NPR started this initiative called the Station Collaboration Team within the investigations desk, where they are really focusing on, you know, for example, at KDLG that I mentioned in Dillingham, it's a very small station in a rural part of Alaska. They don't have the resources to, you know, you can't expect them to have the resources to know how to, you know, program in R or Python, Um, you know, they're just trying to get their newscasts out most of the time, they have literally two or three news staff. And so a lot of times, I'll get pulled in to help with some, you know, a member station reporter has some idea, something that would be a great story, but they just don't have the, you know, the data expertise to do it. And so sometimes I'll be pulled in to help with those. Sometimes I'm doing research and, you know, looking at new data sets and trying to produce um, a national investigation of my own. I, you mentioned a little bit ago, John, the the nursing license story that I did. And so that's an example of a story that I was hearing. Uh, so this published earlier this year. And, and just to summarize, basically boards of nursing across the country were, some of them were taking a very long time to, to approve licenses for registered nurses and, and LPNs. Uh, licensed practical nurses. Um, that's a problem when we are in the midst of a pandemic and there's nursing shortages that have been ongoing for years, and and you 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 don't want to have any any bottleneck at all. And so um, that was an example I was hearing not about nurses, but I was hearing from my friends. And uh, I live in Phoenix, and I was hearing that uh, they were having trouble finding pharmacy technicians. Actually, is what I heard, and I thought, well. Look at healthcare. Who's the backbone of healthcare? It's nurses. There's millions of them ac- across this country that, you know, if anything goes wrong in hospitals or doctors' offices, they're supporting it. And so I started looking at nurses and hearing the same thing was going on. And looking back, I may be a little more hesitant to just kind of willy-nilly embark on a national project. I thought I'll just I'll just send 52 requests to 52 state board of nursing, state boards of nursing. I'm including. Uh, Puerto Rico and DC in that. And it turned out, you know, it takes a long time to get risk, you know, to work through the bureaucracy of, of <laughs> over 50 different boards of nursing. And so the hardest to go back to your question from a second ago about the hardest thing, uh, some of the difficult things, the hardest thing was that there were 52 boards, and I got 32 responses and 32 different responses. They were in in all sorts of, you know, the data was very unclean well, it was, it was in all different formats. And I had to be able to, you know, make it, make them, you know, clean it up and make sure that they're actually comparable one to the other. And so, so that's a long answer about what my typical day is, but that was just to give you some examples.
2: Well, I think it's, it's helpful for us to hear a little bit about the workflow mm-hmm. that, that you describe about going through a, a project like this. I, I guess, I, you know, now that you've mentioned that story, can, can you talk about kind of some of the major takeaways that you learned from the analyses? What are some of the, the endpoints that you looked at and some of the comparisons mm-hmm. that you made between states?
1: Sure. So, I mean, once I got all the data, it was a very simple Analysis. I was really just looking at date the nurse submitted an application and the date that I was approved. I mean, it's subtraction, a count of days. But then I was able to calculate, you know, state medians. And we had a um, our visuals team at NPR made this great visualization that showed, and it was interactive. You could choose by the state, and it would highlight the the dots showing. For example, Pennsylvania was taking I forget the exact number, but it was something like 120 days was their median time. Uh, compared to Vermont, which had, it was practically one day uh, approving licenses. And so we saw a real range and I was able to um, speak with some, you know, once I saw that, um, you know, visualizing is part of the, the the reporting process. A lot of times you think of, journalists will think of visualization as, you know, a final product to show your results to the audience. But I think it really can be part of the the reporting and that's a great thing that uh, you know most data journalists I would say use vis- visualization to find who to focus on and so I made some simple scratch charts in R to see where the medians were and I saw okay Pennsylvania Texas California those are at the top they have really long median processing times of of over a hundred days each. And then we reached out to some of our member station reporters in those places and and got you know pulled them in on board to to get them to focus on on their regions. And it was just a really nice collaboration to show, you know, this where this is happening in different parts across the country, but then also the, the national scale of it.
0: Austin, you said something just a second ago about sort of how the data can help you figure out whom to focus on in your reporting. And I'm looking at one of your stories from NPR about actually people who are missing reporting. It's the story about um, how millions of people are missing from the CDC COVID data. And I wonder, how do you find people that aren't there in data? <laughs>
1: Oh, <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, that story actually started because I was curious. I had done a story right before that, looking at the disparities between rural, rural and urban counties uh, and their COVID vaccination rates. And the next idea I wanted to look at was see, well, where are their racial differences? Um, and so I, the CDC has this data set. It's supposed to have every single case. Uh, of COVID that was reported And again. This is this is last year, so you know it was earlier than we are now. So think of it, it less was known um, at that time, and I very quickly realized that I could not do an analysis on on race because in the data it you know it said it had African American, Caucasian, Asian American, and then unknown. And the unknown or the no response. For many of these counties and states, it was just—it was most of them—and I thought, well, I can't do that. And so the story, um, this is a case where the story isn't always what you expect it's going to be. And you know, you need to be flexible to go where the reporting takes you. And so the story then became, um, okay, the CDC has this other, this other tracking system that's basically just a tally of all the cases, and that tally was millions of cases above what was in the, um, the CDC data set that I was just saying. And so that's how I was able to see that, okay, their tally is X number. The full quote unquote full data set is this number, which is much smaller. What's going on here? And that really led to an interesting story about how our system of public health across the country is, is, is I had one expectation that, okay, the CDC collects all this. It's all there. And I found out very quickly that our system is not like that. Every single county is kind of an island on its own that does its own thing and then reports up to the state and then the state reports up to the CDC voluntarily, meaning they don't have to if they don't want to. And in some states, for example, Texas, they had only reported about 2% of their cases to the CDC. And so the story became, you know, in a state like Texas, which has millions of people and also millions of COVID cases, what effect does that have on epidemiologists ability to analyze and, and make decisions about, you know, what we should do in a pandemic? And, and that was the story, you know, like, what's going on? And unfortunately, uh, as I j- just mentioned, with investigative journalism, sometimes there's not, I, I wasn't able to find, you know, a resolution, but our job is just to point out the issue, um, and, and hope that the people who do work in the government, or you know whatever these agencies are, that they can take that reporting and then you know might be able to create some positive change. So I, you know, I'm curious to, to think about what's how do states?
2: I was going to say how do people, but how did this? How did some of the states respond? To these two stories, I, I mean, I would, I would think that this, this could get some. Uh, you're shining the light on some, some w- w- good performers, and also shining the light on some bad performers. Yeah. And, well, and I mean, how did how did I they sorry. react? I, so I'm just curious. Do you, did you get any kind of residual from this story that that was interesting to see?
1: Um, well, for example, I mentioned Vermont was doing great. They were very happy to talk with me. Obviously <laughs> you might not be surprised cause they, cause they looked good. Um, and I mentioned California, they were actually, they were very, they were great to work with me. It just took a long time. Obviously they're not thrilled that they're not, you know, they're not coming out looking as great in the story, but you know, that's not my, I'm not trying to make anyone look bad in these stories. I'm just reporting the facts, you know, what the data says and and how do you explain that? And so I try to give them their due and give them, you know, uh, an opportunity to respond. I will definitely say that sometimes the, like for example, Texas was not happy to talk with me about that. And they had, All these reasons for you know why it is the way that it is that you know that's not how public health surveillance works in Texas and 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 our our you know it goes to things like our system of federalism the way you know we got back to like the Constitution in the 1700s and reasons why you know we have a federal system and they don't have to send that up to the CDC and I'm just thinking okay I I respect that that's our system but still you know you have to realize you only have. 3% of your cases at the CDC, how does that affect the ability to, for the CDC to make informed decisions?
0: Austin, as you may be aware, having studied journalism now at the undergrad and graduate level, there is often a very cliched fear of numbers that surround journalism (laughs) students, which actually being a journalism professor is not so cliched, I would like to state. I wonder what advice you would have for a student who wants to do this kind of investigative work, but maybe is a little bit nervous about the stats part of that, because a lot of my students are.
1: I would say that data journalism sounds very fancy and maybe intimidating, but like I mentioned with the nursing license story, I was subtracting, you know, one date from the other. A lot of times data journalism is not, you know, create, looking at all these complicated statistical tests and analyses. Um, You know, it can be, and certainly there are great data journalists who do that sort of thing, but I come at it, it, I'm, I'm a journalist first. That's what I learned originally and, and moved into data journalism. There's other data journalists who start as a statistician and move into the journalism part. And so you can, you can choose, you know, your level of how deep you want to go into the numbers. And, and a lot of the things that there's great data journalism that comes out of just, you know, looking at medians and, and, uh, averages and and just very simple things that you probably learned in you know no later than junior high or elementary school um and i would i would hope that everyone can do can can do simple addition subtraction and multiplication fingers crossed um and also, like I mentioned before, there's so many resources online, um, there's there's website, there's all sorts of websites and information on there's data journalism.com. Um, one I turn to all the time is stack which is basically a message board for people who you know using python or r who don't know how to do something and there's just so many answers on there uh, of things you can try and so m- i guess my last psa advice would just you know just try it and you might be surprised um at, at how much you can learn you know even just by devoting a little bit of time to to try to master some of these concepts
2: so as a, as a follow-up to that, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I, I think about as a, as a stat person who's also interested in, in journalism and how how stati- numerical information is conveyed, there's there's often only a, a point estimate is reported. There's often just this precision of a single number, a central measure, without kind of telling the story of the variability or the story mm-hmm. of maybe some of the uncertainty in the system. How, how do you balance kind of a... a, a focus on message, but also the acknowledgement of the variation and uncertainty that are part of the analysis, the data that are that you're analyzing.
1: Right, that's, um, that's something I've talked about a lot with people on, on my team at NPR. I, I mean, numbers are estimates. And especially when you're looking at big data sets, they're, they're estimates. And I think by giving a level of precision out to, you know, two decimal point three, you know, you can give a false sense of security that this is, you know, written in stone and this is what it is. And so especially, I mean, maybe in radio, we have a little bit of, of leeway because to get the message across, we have to round anyways, because when you're listening to an audio story and someone says, let's say, I don't know, 65.1%, that's going to fly over a listener's head. They're, they're thinking about all the, the decimals and, and whatnot anyways. And so in radio, we round anyways, we would say two thirds, just to be even though it's, it's not precisely what the analysis says. um, Our focus is on getting the point across to someone who's driving down the street, yelling at their kid in the backseat, who's, you know, who dropped their pacifier on the floor or whatever, we know that audio radio listeners are doing other things. Um, And so a lot of times, you know, we can't put those in radio stories. And so, I mean, both things kind of go hand in hand because it is kind of problematic anyways, um, just because you, we don't want to give them a false sense of, of how certain this, these numbers are. Well, you know,
2: Austin, I, the, the one thing we didn't mention throughout this is that you contributed to a <laughs> Stats and Stories episode. So I'm going to, as we come to a close here, I'm going to issue a listener challenge. See if you can identify which episode Austin contributed to. <laughs> Good
1: luck.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Austin, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's a delight to, to get to interact with you again. Thanks for, yes, thanks for taking thank the time you. and wish, wish you quite well in, in all this really interesting work that you're doing. Thank
1: you so much.
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.